You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville. In Woodbridge. In Unionville. Welcome to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. This is York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Coming up, a Vaughn student celebrates civil rights icon Viola Desmond, Richmond Hill's 20-year urban plan, and a few great ideas to help you survive the family day long weekend. But we begin with education making major headlines. York Region students are returning to in-person learning on Tuesday and just announced March break will be delayed until the week of April the 12th. Education Minister Stephen Lecce joins us now on the feed. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me on, Anne. Minister Lecce, you had several options when it came to March break. What factors came into play that led to an almost four-week delay? Yeah, the decision point was made on the best advice of Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health as well as consultation with a variety of medical officers of health who believe that based on the modeling, the B1 variant, that UK variant that has uh, come to our country, it's in our country, it's really going to become the predominant strain and could create some real challenges in the early part of March. The decision point was to limit congregation, to discourage travel, and to make sure we further stabilize from that potential modeled-out problem. Moving it a month preserves it in the calendar. Kids are still able to enjoy it and the staff, and that's important. But we create a bit of educational continuity for these kids. They're just getting back into schools, only to be disrupted by a week out. Uh, we thought it'd be prudent to be risk-averse, not take any chances. We saw what happened over the holidays, and obviously the aim today with, uh, with the, the extension is just to make it available to parents, students, and staff when it is safe, and that's why we followed the advice. Unions are arguing that teachers are exhausted and that students are exhausted. Parents are also chiming in saying they're exhausted as well. What do you say to everyone who feels that they need a break now? Well, look, I, I think it's, you know, it's fair game. I think this pandemic has been awful on everyone. And I think most especially the teacher, uh, the teachers and parents and our kids, all of whom have been working hard, having to pivot. But yeah, parents have had to be play the role of, you know, uh, educator and uh, caregiver for their aging parents and, partner uh, and, you know, parents. I mean, it's not been easy. Worker, I mean, they've had to wear many hats. Uh, I think saying to parents, look, we want you to take that time. We know how tough this has been, but only when it is safe, especially with the spring, better weather, there even may be uh, a bit more flexibility in what they can do. But at the end of the day, with this new variant in this province, you know, we've been calling on the feds to strengthen the borders, to try to limit the spread of these uh, much more transmissible variants. Um, but in the meantime, while that continues and while we step up our, uh, obviously, our testing at the border, we have to deal with the variant. And I think the best practice is to get kids in school. It is, schools have been safe, safer than the communities than they, uh, than they operate in. You know, we did, positive, we did testing asymptomatic in some of the hotspots at the worst, toughest zones of the province. And we did not see asymptomatic spread. 1.8% for the kids, they had a positivity rate. That, that was below an average of 8, 10, 12% disproportionately low, showing that all the layers of prevention, those measures we put in place, really helped to prevent the spread and kept schools safe. We just want to keep doing that again and continue to follow the medical science available to us to protect families. Minister Lecce, do you reserve the right to delay March break even further or even pull the plug on in-class learning altogether if the numbers increase to an alarming level again? Well, we've always said we'll act if, uh, you know, we must in the public interest. I mean, we were the first in the country to close schools in March, but I want to be very clear to parents. The reason why we waited this long to reopen schools once community transmission numbers came down from, you know, 34, 38, 39 hundreds, as you may as you recall some weeks ago, to the current numbers of roughly or in and around a thousand uh, is because we wanted to make sure that the rates were low enough to, to make sure we don't put our, our schools in jeopardy. Now that rates have come down, positivity rates of young people have come down, we believe we can get kids back and keep them in school safely. It's why, you know, in a few short days, us, all students here in York and Toronto and Peel will also uh, be in school on Tuesday. That's critical to their mental health and development. And we're doing that because it is safe, because we've taken the cautious approach to letting those numbers come down, introduce a state home order that quite obviously worked. And that's because of the, the hard work of the people of Ontario and families right across the region. So, 
my aim is to keep schools open. It's why we took a cautious reopening in the first place, so we can get them in, keep them in, uh, create some consistency for the kids, for the parents, and really the mental health stimulus that I think every child needs after um, you know this very tough uh, year we've had with the pandemic. So what will be different for York Region students this time around? How do you keep sure. them safe? It's a congregate setting, and we have problems with outbreaks in congregate settings. How do you keep yeah. them safe? And wh- what do you say to parents, teachers, uh, support staff, and the students themselves if they're anxious about returning to class? Well, first off, you know, I think it is exciting that kids are getting back. It's vital for their mental health and development, and I'm a real champion of that cause, so we're really looking forward to that. I think what's different in this environment, if we stepped up our access to asymptomatic testing, I actually spoke uh, just a days ago with Dr. Kerji, York Region's Medical Officer of Health, personally multiple times in the past weeks to ensure that testing capacity, asymptomatic testing, is available and accessible in our communities. Uh, and that is a commitment we have to make sure it's deployed wherever it's needed, up to 50,000 tests a week. That's really going to help us survey the communities, make sure we have surveillance testing. And we just make sure the schools are safe. If, you know, someone comes in with a symptom or a case, we can really provide easy, voluntary, non-invasive testing, voluntary testing for families right in the school. The difference is we're adding masking requirements, you know, um, really mandating them, especially outdoors where kids are playing on the playground, but they're not keeping their distance. We've instituted a, uh, increased funding for cleaning of schools, improvement of air ventilation. We're hiring 400 more uh, custodians on top of the 1,300 that exist in this province. Uh, and I think the other element is a higher quality mask, a three-ply mask for our youngest kids, grade 1 to 12, which is going to be, uh, I think, very important to protecting kids. That's what the new evidence, emerging evidence has said, a better quality mask really helps with the screens. And we're enhancing the screening and before the kids come in, before the staff come in, making sure they've done their screening at home. But now it's an active screening process, especially for our staff and our high school kids. So we're doing a lot. Step it up. We just announced another $380 million for more staffing um, and uh, air ventilation improvements. So we really are taking it seriously. We want families to know we're doing everything possible to protect their child. And this plan to reopen our schools, this cautiously, has been fully supported by the Chief Medical Officer of Health, which I think is really important for families to know that the best medical evidence, the best scientific leaders have said, yes, now is the time to get them back in a safe with a program in place that's going to keep them safe and keep our schools open. You know, we're still in lockdown, stay-at-home orders still in place here in York Region. Does it fly in the face of, of common sense, I guess, to think about sending kids out of their home and back into the classroom when we're under stay-at-home orders? Not at all. I mean, the, the position of sick kids is that schools need to be the last to close and first to reopen. You know, I really believe uh, for schools are essential to life of a child, and there needs to be provision to allow them to be learning every day. That is, I think, an essential element of our society, uh, and we can do that while still introducing, as we have, very tough protocols in place to limit transmission, limit mobility, and the spread of this disease, especially with these new variants that are now in the country. So I think it's actually uh, quite complimentary. Our kids should come first. They need to be in school in a safe environment, which we can do. And to be fair, you know, in many regions of Ontario, and schools have been open. While during the stay-at-home order, they have been safe. Um, and uh, I think really the future of our schools, how we keep kids in school, how we keep our schools open and safe, it comes down to all of us, our collective duty to continue to follow the rules. I know so many folks in the region are really sacrificing and they're doing their part and I'm grateful, but the risk, if we let up our guard, um, is really, I think, uh, potential threats to the safety of schools because the risk of our schools is reflected from the risk in our community. Over 90% of the cases in schools came from the community, according to the Chief Medical Officer of Health, demonstrating that the, you know, the challenge of the community will pose a risk to our schools. So let's make sure that we keep our numbers down, follow the rules, continue to distance and wear masking, and follow the stay-at-home order because by doing so, how we protect our seniors in our congregate care setting, as you said, our long-term care. I've got my own grandmother in one in York Region, and you know, in front of the kids, who I think uh, they really need to come first in this pandemic. And I think uh, by reopening schools safely but keeping many restrictions in place, it demonstrates what matters most to Ontario, and that's the children, the future of Ontario. And they absolutely are our future. Minister of Education Stephen Lecce, thank you so much for joining us on the feed. Appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great weekend. I'm Tina Cortez. Ontario's education unions say that postponing March break 
is not in the best interest of teachers, students, and their families. Karen Brown is the first vice president of the Elementary Teachers Federation with the union's perspective. Uh, we are, Tina, we're, 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 very, we're very disappointed that um, the decision of this government to postpone um, there's been unanimous opposition from unions representing educa- educators and other stakeholders uh, in the sector. We know that um, the School Board Association, the Ontario Principal Council, uh, is, a, is another example of you know this government just ignoring the the experts, people who are in uh, in the positions who are who are doing the frontline work. So we're absolutely uh, disappointed that this is actually happening. Were the unions consulted? Uh, I wouldn't call it a consultation. We were we were in, in, informed. There were some conversations, but you know, basically, the decision was was really already already made. Um, we have seen that this government continues to ignore experts when making um, these decisions, and we feel that we are experts when it comes to to education, when it comes to uh, decisions around uh, the health and safety around frontline workers, and we think uh, there should have been some meaningful con- consultation around this issue. According to the Education Minister, this decision was made in consultation with public health officials to reduce travel, especially as the concern for variants increases. And, and we, we understand uh, those concerns, but then the, the government should have used its, its ability uh, to look at provincial measures that would actually uh, address uh, the the travel concern. Um, this does not address, by closing schools during March break does not address uh, the the concern in regards to community travel. The government has the the power and the ability uh, to do that to put measures in place so that uh, communities and um, individuals respect those particular orders. What's interesting is that this order is, you know, this this conversation around the safety of Ontario uh, families and students is not extended to those who are in the the private system. It's simply a recommendation. Uh, so it's it's almost like COVID just stops for those who are who are in public schools. And if you're in a private school, you can continue to have that. But COVID's not being uh, impacted in in those particular areas. So it's it's you know it's a, it's a bit dubious at best in how this uh, this decision was made. What about those who say that these kids, our children, our students need some consistency and they're just getting back in the classroom and to pull them out during March break would not give them that consistency? What do you say about that? Um, for consistency, what's, what's needed in the system uh, is the necessary uh, investment. So we've been talking about that. Consistency is when this government uh, invests in smaller class sizes, invests in um, masking proper PPE for educators uh, so that there can be uh, in-person learning taking place so that we are not reacting in and out. If we put the proper uh, mechanisms in place, uh, the proper ventilation in, in, the, in the settings, um, we talked about the you know, portable air purifications, those sorts of things are what's going to keep consistency um, in the schools and that kids, children will be able to attend school with those measures and our members will, will feel safe in the classroom. Also, we, we need to have, you know, the asymptomatic testing occurring. There needs to be a broad-based testing across Ontario. And with those measures uh, put in place, those are things that will provide consistency for parents. Those measures aren't in place and until they are, this will continue. It will continue. What are you hearing from parents and from your members? Uh, Parents are exhausted. Mm -hmm. They are exhausted. Uh, Parents with young children, children, you know, under grade three and even even older are are exhausted with trying to balance working at home and also assisting uh, their their own students, their own own children. Uh, You know, the screen time, we've heard concerns about the level of, of screen time that's it's, that's taking place. Uh, there's a great deal of, of burnout, anxiety, uh, you know, and stress by our students and our and our members. It, there's uh, we need to have a, a break. Uh, you know, students need to to have uh, a break. There's a great deal of um, pressure. Um, and it's it's a, it's a time of exhaustion, and we want to ensure that 
This government prioritizes the, the mental health of students, educators, and their families, and, and parents are saying they, they need this time to, to pause. What do you want to say to those, though, who suggest that any time there's any kind of change, that there will be pushback from the unions and from teachers? What do you want to say to those folks? I, I don't think we've, we've pushed back um, every time. I think what we have done is uh, brought uh, an additional voice uh, to the table, to the concerns, to the discussions, and we are stakeholders, and I think it's important that we, we highlight some of those uh, issues. And for our members, what we've heard, as I said, they're anxious, they're stressed, uh, they're exhausted. We're hearing this from parents, and this is an opportunity uh, for the minister to, to hear what's happening uh, on, on the front line. Uh, the system, you know, is at, a, is at a breaking point, and our members need to be able to uh, rejuvenate so that they can continue to support students and to support student learning. And we believe our voice is, is an important part of that conversation, and we owe it to our members, we owe it to uh, families, and we owe it to students and when we're talking about uh, quality public education. And so to talk about um, and to prioritize the mental health of students, educators, and our families, we feel this is part of our responsibility to, to share uh, our concerns. So Karen, one last question. Where do teachers go from here? What's the next move by the unions? I mean, we will continue to, to respect and, and honor um, the decisions of, of the public health department, but we're asking this, this government uh, to really to listen to the, the voice of frontline workers uh, in, the in the education community and to reverse their decision to postpone March break. Uh, this, this break is, is needed uh, for everyone. Our members have gone um, to an extraordinary length. Uh, to support students every day since the beginning of this year, uh, whether in person or online. And um, those efforts need to be applauded and, and not diminished. Uh, they, they need the opportunity to rejuvenate so that they can be the best for our students. So we're asking for this government to listen to our voices, listen to the members, those who are on the front line, and to reverse their decision to postpone March break. And we'll continue to lobby and to push. We have a petition out. Um, and we're encouraging um, members of the community, members of the public, uh, to sign that petition and for uh, this, this, this um, Minister of Education to really reconsider um, what, is, what is happening right now. What we do know is that um, you know, there continues to be evidence that um, school openings have contributed to the rise uh, of cases during the second wave of the pandemic, and um, we, we need to, to take this, this break uh, so that we can be prepared as we move forward. If our listeners want more information about that petition, where can they go? Uh, they can visit us at etfo.ca. Coming up next, celebrations across York Region. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. Our next few stories celebrate families and black history. Afua Ba with how a Vaughan student is honoring Viola Desmond. Fighting to right a wrong, what started as a local student school project turned into the province of Nova Scotia basically overturning a fine issued against a civil rights icon. Remarkable story. So uh, joining me today to talk about this is Varishini Diochan. Thank you so much for your time today. It's a pleasure being here. Thank you. Awesome. Okay. Uh, first off, you are a local high school student, right? That's correct. And what grade are you in? I'm in grade 11. Grade 11. Okay. So senior in high school. You're still moving up the ranks. I like it. And you are at uh, Maple High School. Now, this all started with a high school project, right? To correct you, it was actually a project in grade 8. Oh, okay. Um, cool. All right. Talk to me about it. How did it all start? So this kind of all uprooted itself in grade eight. It was um, from a grade eight English project where we were to 
researched an iconic black individual, and I chose Viola Desmond. After some preliminary research, I saw that she paid a fine of $26 for a crime that she did not commit, and she was also pardoned in April of 2010. So um, once again, it is to my belief that one should not pay a fine for a crime they did not commit, and in and of itself, the fact that they um, they posthumously pardoned her is testament to the statement that she did not commit the crime she was falsely convicted of seven decades ago. So that's why um, I took on this project. Wow. Okay. And you were only ingredient at this time. So, you know, you're researching this. You know, what prompted you to say you want to take this on and, and try to correct this? Well, I don't ascribe any of the credit of the success of this project to myself. I think that Viola Adjustment was a civil rights icon who left an indelible mark on Canadian black history, and I'm just a very small part of righting a wrong of the past. So I thought, well, I, I, see, I, thought, I thought it was my moral obligation in a way um, because I did see something that could possibly be done in a more sincere, sincere block manner, and I decided to take that project on. You know, you're being quite humble with this, but I appreciate it, especially I, I get where you're coming from with this. Some, you know, may start the project and decide, you know, this is wrong, but may not take the steps that you took. So at what point did you make the decision for yourself to say, you know what, you want to write a letter to the premier of Nova Scotia? Yeah, so it wasn't a prompt decision. I ruminated on it for a couple of days, but then I decided to write the letter because, as you said, um, I really don't believe in seeing something that is wrong and then just going back and doing what I had to do, like eating my dinner, for example. Um, I think that it deserves a conversation, and I wanted to I wanted to evoke that conversation, so that is why I wrote the letter. But it was certainly not um, something that I did promptly after I found this out. I I thought about it for a couple of days. I'd say. Did you think you were going to get a response back? And how long did it take before you got a response? Since I'm in Ontario and I mailed the letter um, to Nova Scotia, it took about two weeks for um, me to receive a, a response, which is prompt in my opinion. Um, I did receive a call from the Premier of Nova Scotia, the Honorable Stephen McNeil, and um, he was addressing my letter and asked to have a conversation with me, which obviously I agreed to. And um, during that conversation, we spoke about, well, my motivation and how exactly I got this idea, along with the logistics of everything. But I think that um, to answer your question of did I think I would get a response back, yeah, I, I did. What were your thoughts when you heard the news that they were, one, overturning the fine, and then, two, adding on to the fine so that they could change it into a scholarship for a local university? I was honestly thrilled, and I was very, and I am very optimistic for the future, honestly, because um, I don't know if you're aware of the uh, story behind the actual $1,000 number, but um, in today's currency, or in today's um, dollar value, $26 back then would convert to about 360 something dollars today and they basically rounded that up to a thousand dollars which was good, which is being made as a one-time scholarship donation to the university of cape Breton. and i obviously thought that that is absolutely amazing and um i think that that is yet another way that we can add testament to the fact that we want to foment a propitious road for the future generations and create a society that's equal and just for all. And I think that this extra step that the government of Nova Scotia is taking is amazingly gracious in trying to do this. Wonderfully said. And all change always begins with one step. What have you learned from that particular project and about this entire experience? I think that when I was in grade eight, what I've learned from this entire project was that you're never too small to make a difference. And I was 13 back then when I wrote that letter, and um, I'm amazed by the turnout that it's had. And I'm very thankful and appreciative of the government of Nova Scotia for taking these steps. So I think that the true lesson that I've really learned is that activism is key, and I definitely want to take on more of a advocative role or um, something like that in the future. 
I can kind of hear that in your voice. And I mean, that's really so great to hear uh, that you kind of want to take that path for yourself. Um, just to clarify, I know that you started the project in grade eight. How long in terms of the sort of time span from the time that you started the project to the premiere to seeing them uh, place this 1000 scholarship at the local university? How long did that all take? Um, yes, I wrote the letter in grade eight and we were working on the logistics for the bulk of the three-year gap, and the fine and scholarship was paid last Wednesday. Ah, okay. So there we go. That's where that whole full circle moment comes in. Finally, simple question. Any advice that you have to others, whether younger or older? I think that finding a cause that you're truly passionate about, that you're not just doing for the media representation is imperative if you want to take on a role of advocacy within your community or on the international stage. Um, and I think that finding something that you're truly passionate about is really key, and that should be the foundational basis of all of your work should you choose to take on a role of leadership within your community. Wonderfully said once again. Wise beyond your years. Um, I wish you all the best. Uh, Varishini Diochan, local high school student right out here at Maple High School. Thank you for, I guess, championing this cause as young as you did. And keep up the work that you're doing and continue to be passionate about it. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Jim Lang is next with How to Celebrate Our Families in the Time of COVID. Well, emotional fitness, physical fitness, mental fitness, it's all important as we deal with the pandemic. Uh, something we need to address and need to talk more about. A thrilled to be joined by Dr. Natasha Sharma, emotional fitness expert and founder of the Kindness Journal. Dr. Sharma, how are you? I'm well, thanks. How are you doing? Well, I'm, I'm, I think I'm okay. I, I, I mean, I try to stay fit physically, but I'm, what is emotional <laughs> fitness? That's a good question. It, I, you know, the way I define it is the idea that we're... Uh, constantly sort of growing and engaging in a process where we we understand ourselves and we understand what drives us and we're able to be in control of how we show up in life as much as possible and, and just kind of focus on that. And that to me is a very short definition of what emotional fitness is. Well, you know, I keep hearing uh, people saying, oh, I'm so tired of, you know, being in the walls around my family all the time. And the one thing my wife and I have tried to do is we take a little bit of time every day just to talk about you know, hey, this is going on, that's going on. We're finding talking to each other has helped. Is that is that a good thing to do? Well, I think it's absolutely. I mean, it's a, it, I think it's, there's never any harm to getting to know the people who are most important in your life better. And this is certainly an opportunity to do that. I think it's not so much that we're, I hear a lot of this this past year, you know, that we're getting sick of, are we getting sick of the people in our homes and how normal, uh, quote unquote, is that. I don't think it's so much that we're getting tired of our loved ones and if we're living with people and the ones that we can see, I think it's a little bit more that we are deprived, our senses are so deprived of the whole range of other things that we used to, that they used to engage in, like the sounds, the, the sights, um, just simple things like listening to cutlery on the plate in the restaurant or just listening to traffic or airplanes in the sky. It's just a very much quieter world, which makes it seem as though all we can see and, and do is like, and, and focus on is what's in front of us. Does that make sense? And I think that sort of makes us feel as though we can become tired or, or, or fatigued with it. But I think it's a little bit more a combination of both. Well, it makes perfect sense. I mean, for myself, it's been over a year. My, my good friends and I, every Friday afternoon, we would play hockey, then go, to the keg for a, a beer after hockey and the sound and the, the din and just the the energy that's gone. And yeah. you're right, it, we do miss that. Yes, it, it's a huge part of um, our wellness. I mean, it doesn't constitute sort of overall contentness and happiness, but it's I, I categorize it as sensations. And sensations, they involve the five senses, right? And our five senses are getting much, much less playtime right now. Speaking to Dr. Natasha Sharma, emotional fitness expert and the founder of the Kindness Journal. Well, Dr. Sharma, we've been hearing this with a lot of parents who have younger kids and trying to help them with their online education as well as their own mental health and trying to do maybe their own work online. It is rough. Mm -hmm. How do families get through these unusual times? 
think you have to just take it one day at a time. Uh, assess your individual situation. Not everyone's situation is the same. Definitely don't compare yourself to how other people are doing it. I mean, man, like my family has a different situation from all the other families that we know. Um, and, and just remember that it, whatever your situation is, if it's a good one, be grateful for it. If you have one where it's more challenging, deal with the problems as best as you can. And, you know, your home does not have to look, and the setup, it does not have to look like everyone else's. You know, maybe you've got one child who's actively in school. Maybe you've got one who's, who's out, like mine, my four-year-old. We just decided to pull them out until they start next week. It's just, it's better for us. So, you know, that's my tip. Just look at your individual situation. Be kind. Take care of yourself first, parents, because the kids need that before anything else, even before school. They need healthy parents. Well, and then, you know, family day is almost upon us, and people think, family day? I'm ha- I live family day every day. How do I celebrate family day in COVID? <laughs> it, I, I know. kind of comes back. I know, right? <laughs> it kind of comes back, I think, to the senses thing. We, we just, it's become one kind of um, blank page it can feel like. And it, it's, you know, that idea that, yeah, if, if you are someone who lives with, with children or with your family every day is like that. I think if there are ways to make it special. I think there are just ways to make it fun, even if you do the same thing. It's okay if the day looks exactly like the one yesterday. That's the first point. That does not hinder the quality or the fact that the day is still a gift. You know, even if you did the exact same thing and the exact same routine as you've been doing for the past seven days. Um, but if you feel like you have the time and energy and the desire to try and mix it up and do something, try something, you know, I know we have a limited range, but try something that you haven't done. Maybe you go outside and skate on one of the many public rinks. Or I have a friend of mine who just, uh, I just read this yesterday. She's got, she ordered a nice fancy meal for her and her husband and she recruited they recruited their two kids to act as servers, and they're going to set up a restaurant in their home. They're even putting the sound effects on YouTube of the restaurant. I think that's fantastic. Oh, wow, what a fantastic idea. Why, I why did I think copy. of that? I have to copy that. Man, that's awesome. And and, and it's, I'm glad you brought that up, Doctor, because my wife, is she's very talented and handy, and she's instituted and in taking care of some interesting home improvement projects in her house. And I'm like... Oh, oh, okay. Once she was done, that looks great. And and I've tried to do a few things. I'm trying to, I guess, b- brush up and get more eloquent and more fluent in my French language skills. Because mm-hmm. I, I think I have time. Well, I mean, I know I do some workout every day, but then I have these other hours. Why don't I do a little bit of this and that? So Because otherwise you'd say, I don't have time for this. Now I do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There are people who have time. I, I mean, it's sort of loosely categorized three or four or five sets of people, like some people who are living with kids, people without couples without kids who are getting to know one another and <laughs> maybe arguing more, but also maybe making love more, who knows? And then, you know, you have people who are living on their own who might potentially be, be mentally struggling the most. But yeah, it, regardless of where you're at, it's an opportunity at least somewhere to try something new. If nothing else, figuring out how you're managing this is part of your growth. I mean, it doesn't feel fun for any of us, no matter how we're experiencing it, but there are, are several upsides for most of us. I, you and, know, I, yeah. I, I find every afternoon I take my dog for a walk about 3, 3.30, and he's older. It's not mm-hmm. a long walk, but that little bit of fresh air and walking Hershey, I find it makes a big difference. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it's something. I think there are people who have adopted habits that they previously didn't have, and, and we're going to see how people's lives have changed for the long term once we get um, a longer picture of this down the road. But, you know, there will, I think there will be some people who, who stay the same or maybe um, digress. But I think many, many people, I'm very hopeful and very optimistic that many people will have adopted some some really great new habits coming out of this, including moving more, exercising more, uh, things that have just become a habit now. You don't even have to think of them. Your day is not even complete without um, these positive habits because you had nothing else to do but those for so long. <laughs> well, Dr. Sharma, you've helped so many people in Canada and North America with your advice and the Kindness Journal. What do you do to help yourself? It's a good question, too. I, I do a lot of the same. You know, I take quiet time for myself. That's a huge thing that I realized I didn't have time for before this pandemic. I have two small kids, four and seven, mm. and uh, we've, we have busy lives, um, uh, relatively busy lives even before this, but uh, 
but we've, we've always been good with balance, you know, never overburdening ourselves as parents. But what I, I realized I wasn't doing the best then is making very quiet time where I wasn't doing anything at all. So I take care of myself by just letting myself go back up inside my head, which I used to do as a single person much more often. You know, where you yeah. just listen to your own thoughts and you just face what you don't have always time to think about. Um, so I, take, I do that, and I take many, many long walks as well. I, I just love walking. Now, when the kids are in bed, my wife and I discovered a show on Netflix. I mean, it's, I mean we, it's been out for a couple of years, but we are absolutely in love with Outlander. Jamie and Claire, it's awesome. Oh, yeah. I'm not familiar, but I've heard. I, I've heard of the show. I, I haven't watched it. Not for the kids, but you and your husband would like yeah. it. Uh, Dr. Natasha Sharma, emotional fitness expert, founder of the Kindness Journal. Dr. Sharma, thank you so much for your insight and information and helping us get through this. You're making a big difference, and it's greatly appreciated. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you so much for having me on today. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. So if you need a few ideas to keep your family entertained this long weekend, Tina Cortez now with a few options. Mac Rogers is the executive director of ABC Life Literacy Canada, and he joins us next on the feed. Welcome to the show, Mac. Thank you. Love to be here. So tell us a little bit about ABC Life Literacy Canada. What's it all about? Absolutely. So ABC has been uh, been around for about 30 years. Uh, we're a national charity. What we do is we really try to focus on getting people engaged in learning activities. So we get people to start learning. It doesn't matter if it's financial literacy or health literacy or what we're going to talk to today about family literacy. So wait a second. You talked about um, financial literacy as well. When does that start? That starts all year. Oh. <laughs> it never stops. So we, uh, all of our literacy programs, uh, except for Family Literacy Day, run all year long. So it's really about encouraging people to engage. And you can learn more about it and, and try your different, different hands at literacy on our website, uh, abcskillshub.ca. But you can also download lots of activities across all the different literacies and modules we do. Everything we do is free, um, and it's built for adult learners and their families couple of key things you mentioned there. It's free. That's fantastic and great for families. And you've been around for 30 years. How has the program, how has the organization changed over the decades? Yeah, that's a great question. So we've really gone through a lot of different uh, kind of versions of our organization. And, and really over the last 10 years, we've really focused in on on delivering introductory modules. But then when we had the pandemic hit, things changed again. So we traditionally deliver programs in classrooms. So in learning centers, libraries, uh, welcome centers, all sorts of community organizations, we supply the resources, they bring in the learners, and it's a great combination. But with the pandemic, we've had to shift and we've had to move a lot of our resources online so that people can practice and, and develop their skills from home. And how much of an impact does a parent's own reading habits have on their child? It's a, it's a really big impact. Mm -hmm. um, so children uh, whose parents are involved with them in family literacy activities score 10 points higher on standardized reading tests. Um, another kind of example is that um, if children with low literacy parents are exposed to 30 million fewer words when they enter kindergarten than those with higher, higher literacy parents. So it's really about exposing your kids to as much as you can, but also the modeling the great behavior that you want them to, to uh, internalize. So that could be when they read, you sit down and read beside them, and that'll show them that reading is important to you, it's valued by you, and it's something that a skill that you want to continue to work on. And you mentioned exposing them to that early on in life? Yeah, we should be reading right from forever. <laughs> so. mm -hmm. Okay, so how can we combine reading and fun for the entire household this Family Day weekend? Yeah, that's a great question. So family literacy isn't just about reading. We want to be really clear about that. It's about doing any sort of activity that is learning together. So we do this all the time, but we just need to kind of call it out and celebrate it. And that's what, you know, family day is going to be a really key time to do, is to say, what is something that we're doing together, we're learning together, that we can say, this is something that we're going to celebrate. It doesn't have to be two hours in front of a computer learning, you know, a specific thing. It can be 
baking together where you can actually talk about what is a measurement and what is, um, you know, 100 milliliters versus a quarter of a cup and things like that. So you can actually talk about numeracy. Or it can be about playing games together, both games that you read and games like cards where you can actually practice, you know, working with other skills and things like that. It can be singing songs and, and doing karaoke as a family just for fun. Um, so it really doesn't uh, have to be about books. It doesn't have to be about tests or assignments or skill development. It just has to be about working together. If you're looking for ideas, a really great place is if you go to ABC's HSBC Family Literacy First program, which is familyliteracyfirst.ca, there's actually over 80 stories and activities, all free, all downloadable, uh, and not only in English, but they come in French, Simplify Chinese, Tagalog, and Arabic. So you can go there, you can download a story or two, download some fun activities, and actually just start playing, and then you don't have to come up with all the ideas. That's excellent. And what about some ideas to get us out of the house this weekend? Yeah, so, well, we always want to encourage people to maintain the social distancing that's important in their communities. We also want to make sure that they're actually getting some fresh air. So there are games and activities we can do safely outside of our house. Now, depending on the weather, it could be, you know, building snowmen and stuff like that and talking about the different sizes and what you could use and being creative of of different sizes of shapes and that sort of thing. It can also be a neighborhood treasure hunt where you walk around and you're trying to find, you know, items that begin with a certain letter or um, just trying to identify different pathways or working on your kind of your rationale about, you know, navigating the streets around you safely. So it's about all these different options that you can get outside of the house. And you can turn something like tobogganing into a fun learning activity when you just talk about gravity for a few minutes and have some fun experiments with gravity. Um, And that can include pushing someone down a hill. That's terrific. And if parents want to brush up their own skills on, on gravity and learn more, they can go to the site first and then be the experts when it comes to their kids, right? Absolutely. So we have uh, science experiments on there. We have cooking activities. We have songs, rhymes, poems. Um, I think we even have um, activities where we're we're teaching different languages. So it it is lots of different things you can play with um, and really kind of inspire yourself and take what you want and and leave what you don't and uh, just make sure that you're kind of having fun, but identifying it as something that you're doing together. And that's about learning and celebration of in the celebration of learning. That sounds terrific and some great ideas in there for this weekend. If our listeners want more information, where can they find it? I recommend going to familyliteracyfirst.ca. That's where those 80 activities and stories will be. Um, But you can also go to our our, uh, Skills Hub website, abcskillshub.ca, and actually do some online learning for yourself. Mac Rogers, Executive Director of ABC Life Literacy Canada. Thanks for the tips. After the break, inside Richmond Hill's urban plan. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Over the past six years, David Dixon has led planning and urban design initiatives to launch $15 billion of investment in traditional downtowns, new mixed-use districts, new downtowns and walkable centers for suburbs, and urban innovation districts. Right now, this world-renowned and award-winning urban planner has his sights set squarely on Richmond Hill. It's called City Plan 2041, with the goal of establishing Richmond Hill as one of the GTA's most prominent and successful communities. David Dixon joins us now on the feed. Thanks for taking the time. How are you? I'm fine, and thank you for the invitation. I look forward to your questions. You are a very busy man, so let's first talk about how this relationship with Richmond Hill came about. Uh, I got a wonderful email from... uh, uh, one of the city's really terrific planners inviting me to a conversation. We had a terrific conversation, and I think we're very excited about working together. How do you go about creating a vision for a place like Richmond Hill? Do you have boots on the ground? Do you look at photographs? Do you go into its history? How do you put it all together or start to put it together, David? Well, that is a great question, and I first of all want to emphasize that the creating this vision is a team effort. It is the city's terrific planners. It, I'm hopefully contributing. Uh, there are a lot of folks in 
uh, Richmond Hill who have been participating and many more who will at the uh, open house. And all everybody's mind together comes up with this vision. My particular contribution to this is to look at what is likely to change over the next 20 years between now and 2041 in terms of our demographics, our economy, how the technology of how we move around, and what kinds of opportunities for Richmond Hill do these changes present? 20 years is a long time, and in some cases, it's a very short amount of time. Why 20 years? Well, uh, I, I will speak from my perspective. Right now, we know a lot. There's a lot we don't know about for the next 20 years, of course. But we do know a lot about, and I'll start with, for example, our demographics. Uh, right now, uh, as we speak, we are in a worldwide pandemic, and uh, that has changed many of our behaviors. What it has not changed is the fact that for the next 20 years, uh, due to demographic changes, the overwhelming majority of new households, net new households, these are the folks who, this is what our housing market, these are the folks who make up our housing market, will be singles and couples without kids. That is the most urban housing market that North America will have had, certainly in my very long lifetime, and I suspect in our history. So how does that information help you put together an urban plan, a, a, a vision for Richmond Hill? All of what you've just mentioned is projected into the future. So how do you begin to make that vision a reality now, day one, year one of the 20-year vision? Well, uh, that's a really good question, and you, you prepare for it. But you prepare for it in two ways. One is, what parts of Richmond Hill should stay the same? You know, wonderful tree-lined blocks with single-family houses, neighborhoods people love. Uh, there's no reason to change these in any substantial way that I know of. Uh, where change should go are all that near a uh, uh, subway stop where you have transit, uh, where uh, along Young Street, for example, where there will be tremendous opportunity to accommodate this demographic shift in ways that can bring a lot of life to, uh, to Young Street. They'll support a lot of retail, great restaurants, places to hang out, uh, larger tax base, uh, create great places for people who live in na- nearby neighborhoods to walk. But it's a vision that's as much about what you preserve as what we should begin to set the stage for changing. Interesting. So, David, you led the post-Katrina master plan for New Orleans. You also have had your hand in very, very big ways uh, work in Birmingham, Alabama, Corpus Christi, uh, the Boston region, London, Ontario, Tampa, Florida, Memphis, Wichita, Columbus, Ohio, Dayton, Ohio. What have those projects combined meant to you, and what do you bring in terms of experience from those to the Richmond Hill Arena? Oh, well, thank you. That's a, uh, I, if I, to, to, to think quickly there, um, what, what all these places share in common and share with Richmond Hill uh, are the changes that are coming, the, the change demographics, the, the urban opportunity that none of these cities, communities, have had to the extent that they're going to have over the next 20 years. So how to unlock that in ways that help attract jobs, help us become more equitable, uh, help us pay for new green spaces, make our cities, our communities more livable, to me is a, is a unique opportunity. And it's very exciting for me to get to work with communities like Richmond Hill to figure out how to unlock these opportunities, how to take advantage of these kinds of changes uh, so that they're more livable, opportunity-rich, equitable places. Interesting. Uh, part of the information that is out there now about the work that you're going to do and City Plan 2041 also states that you and the team are trying to make Richmond Hill one of the greater Toronto area's most prominent and successful communities. How do you do that? Uh, You you do that, uh, again, by preserving what people love and changing the places that are are right for change. I'll put it that way. Um, So, uh, one of the things that is really important uh, for Richmond Hill is to attract more jobs, to attract more tax base, uh, not just for their own sake, because this is what creates opportunity for the folks who live in Richmond Hill. Uh, this is what, uh, together with new residents, will support more life along Young Street, for example, uh, make uh, um, 
Richmond Hill uh, really a place that can be the heart of the of New York region uh, because of the destinations it offers, the livability it offers, the economic opportunity it offers, uh, and frankly, the transit connections it offers that, that can bring all these things together. The community is encouraged to share its ideas for City Plan 2041. How important is input from the citizens of Richmond Hill? I would say input is very important. Uh, this is a two-way conversation. Uh, to me, the most it is input is really important. People need to feel that, uh, not just feel, they need to be the co-authors of the plan for their community because, frankly, it is their political support that will empower city government in Richmond Hill uh, to move forward and enact this plan and implement the recommendations that come out of it. If people don't believe in it, if their heart isn't in it, it's going to be very hard to implement. There is a virtual open house for City Plan 2041. It's Thursday, February 18th, 6.30 until 8 p.m. People are encouraged to register by going to richmondhill.ca. Will you be looking very closely at what you're hearing and seeing from the community? Oh, absolutely. And I want to say right from the start, I have a lot to learn. We all have a lot to learn. Uh, And I suspect uh, that the good folks who, and I hope many of your listeners do, who uh, participate in the open house, learn a lot from each other. Uh, There is, uh, I I have not yet been in a meeting with the folks in a great community like Richmond Hill where I haven't learned some really terrific and important things. And I look forward to it at the open house. When I read the list of amazing things that you have done so far, top of the list was uh, New Orleans after Katrina. Do you think Richmond Hill, when you are said and done with this project and you hand it over to everyone in charge in Richmond Hill and the community as well, will you put it near the top of your list of, of accomplishments? I certainly hope so. And, and again, I want to emphasize, you know, I'm part of a team. And frankly, uh, no one brain can get this right. It is the collection of brains engaged who will make this a great plan and something that I and everyone can be proud of. But to me, and the reason that this is in a personal, almost selfish way so exciting, is that Richmond Hill is posed for two decades of really tremendous opportunity that extend across the community. And being able to help unlock that opportunity to take advantage of the changes that are happening, not just our demographics, but also our economy. It's more and more focused on knowledge workers, on places, uh, and these are folks who want to live and work in places that are walkable and mixed-use and lively. Uh, it, we are, we'll be entering the era of autonomous mobility over the next 20 years, and a place that's ready to take advantage of, like, of, of that will be a place that can really unlock a tremendous amount of opportunity for the folks who live there today to be a more livable, walkable, uh, community-rich place and the chance to participate with folks and in unlocking access to this opportunity is really exciting. And Richmond Hill, a place to call home. I want to thank you so much, David Dixon, world-renowned and award-winning urban planner, for joining us on the feed. Very interesting. Well, thank you very much, and I certainly appreciate the opportunity. So if you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or follow us on Twitter at 1059theregion. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.